Welcome to Money Memoirs, a taboo-breaking interview series sharing intimately uncensored conversations about money. I am Barry Tesler, a financial therapist, author, and creator of The Art of Money, my year-long money school and global community. Join me as I connect with brave folks from all walks of life to explore their experiences with money from their greatest struggles to triumphant celebrations, to lessons learned, and unexpected discoveries along the way. These interviews are raw, heartfelt money stories. They're vulnerable, inspiring, and always authentic. These interviews are a snapshot of the personal connection and practical support you'll find in my year-long money school, The Art of Money. The Art of Money is a holistic framework that integrates money healing, money practices, and money maps. And it blends together therapeutic body-based practices with so many real life tools that you need to create healthy, sustainable change in your money life. If you'd like to learn more, head to barrytesler.com. For now, get comfy and cozy for another intimately uncensored money memoir. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Art of Money podcast. Today, I have the honor of interviewing Sandra Davis. And I'm going to share her bio because I want you to know who she is, what she's done, what she's doing, what she is committed to bringing to the world. And let me start with that, and then I'll, I'll, I'll go into how I know her and when we met each other. So Sandra Davis is a financial coach, educator, consultant, and motivational speaker who is nationally recognized for her work with community-based organizations that focus on asset building for the working poor. She is the executive director and founder of Sage Financial Solutions, an organization dedicated to helping communities develop comprehensive financial education programs. Sandra was instrumental in the development of the San Francisco Office of Financial Empowerment Smart Money Network and is a co-founder of Earn's Work in Financial Coaching. She's collaborated with several organizations to develop and expand their financial capacity projects and provides technical assistance and capacity building to support new and expanded financial education and coaching programs. Sandra is the past president of the Financial Therapy Association and is active in the Financial Planning Association, FPA, San Francisco, Chapter Pro Bono Committee. She has served on the FPA Pro Bono National Advisory Committee, Committee, the Diversity Task Force. She has received numerous awards for her work, including the Heart of Financial Planning Award and the Pro Bono Planner of the Year. I also want to share her organization, Sage Financial Solutions, and a little bit about their mission. Sage Financial Solutions bridges the gap between financial services professions and low-wealth communities. We believe that everyone needs and deserves access to competent, ethical financial services, and so we provide support to community-based organizations and financial life skills programs for low-wealth individuals. So I met Sandra almost 15 years ago at a financial planner home meeting that was called Nasrudin. It was a group of financial planners that were really interested in more than just um, building wealth and investments. They certainly, that was all important to them, but they were really aware, they were at the forefront, that our emotions, our, psych- our psychology, um, that emotional literacy was left out of their training, and it is equally as important as financial literacy. And they were some of the first to bring in therapists into some of their meetings and some of the first to be creating um, some of the work that I do, financial therapy, and I met Sandra 15 years ago, and I remember so many things about her, but one is that there weren't that many women in the room, she was one of them, and that she was the only woman of color 
in the room, and this was 15 years ago. And it is an incredible honor to have you here, Sandra. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Barry, thank you. I uh, am really looking forward to spending some time with you. It's been such a long time. And one of my fondest memories of you was the chocolate. Do you remember you had just um, come in on the airplane and you had sat on your chocolate bar? And you were <laughs> telling me all about it. <laughs> Do you remember like that? Like when Exactly, exactly. Oh, my God. And and I actually started buying that chocolate after you told me about it, and you told me about the mission of the people who had developed and, you know, created this amazing chocolate bar. And so, yeah, so it's so funny when I thought of you a couple of weeks ago, I think that that was it. I had either uh, had that moment of clarity around missing chocolate in my life in that moment, and I thought of you, and you know, of course, not the, necessarily wanting to sit in it, but certainly wanting to have a good chocolate bar. And I think you <laughs> shared one of the ones you had with me, and <laughs> changed my life forever. <laughs> I'm sure I did. I mean, that I love that story. I haven't thought about that story or remembered that in many, many years. And I I introduced dark chocolate to a lot of people, so I'm so glad. And that was Dagoba. They were a wonderful small company yeah. that un- unfortunately sold to Hershey's, and it's not so great anymore. But at the time, it was a wonderful local company where I knew the owner, you know, and the creator of that. So, yeah, and I, I love that I gave you some. I love it. Yes. <laughs> Very good. Very good. So I've been aware of your work since then, and haven't followed you closely, but you, you just kept popping up over and over at different points. And at some point, I started interviewing a lot of the pioneers of the financial planning, financial therapy field, and I, I consider you one of the pioneers of this work. And so I'd love, I have so many questions for you, so I'm going to have to take a deep breath. And calm down because I'm excited. But let's, I want to start with um, when I met you, you were just heading into your 40s and had made a significant career change into financial planning. And I'd love to start by hearing some of your money story and how you found your way to this profession and how you were brave enough to, you know, step into a whole new profession in your 40s. Absolutely. So you're very gracious. I was not heading into my 40s. I was staunchly dead in the middle, <laughs> right? So I changed careers. At, yeah, I was 44, and um, I had been in the nonprofit sector. I was a development director, grant writer for nonprofit agencies that dealt mostly um, with housing in low-income communities. I did a lot of uh, work around AIDS in the black community, um, and, of course, that's in the 80s, and, and, you know, AIDS was really ravaging the black community at that time, and so I was doing a lot of fundraising for those kinds of things. And then most recently was um, a small school uh, in San Francisco. I was born and raised in San Francisco. And so it was really great to, to be actively engaged in building organizations in my home, in my hometown. Um, I joined the Navy at 17, went away, uh, came back home uh, uh, pretty young. I, I spent four, four, four active and four reserve, and then came back home and, and just kind of got right into the nonprofit world. Um, so I did that for, for 20 years. And uh, I think the thing that was most challenging for me is that I learned maybe maybe too quickly, I guess, uh, to be able to just kind of deal with it. Like some people can know you can be doing this work forever and nothing changes and they just kind of keep spinning on that wheel. And for me, I became very aware that it didn't matter how much I did, that unless people took responsibility for their financial life, nothing I did was going to change. And although I wasn't doing direct services, I was very committed to choosing organizations that were doing good work on the ground, right? So for me, it just became so clear that, you know, I could I could fundraise for people to get houses, and then if they didn't know how to manage their money well, they were in foreclosure. I could help people get college educations, and if they didn't know how to manage their money well, they, they were in student loan debt that was crushing or, or couldn't get a job in the field that was able to pay off. And this was, of course, before the student loan crisis. And so I, I, it just became very clear to me 
that personal finance was a real thing. And I didn't know this before. I was raised in a in a family where, you know, my mom was a serial entrepreneur and her life was she was one of 12, so she was she was raised very poor in New Jersey. And um you know, so for her it was like there'll always be more money. You just if you want something, you just work more. So there was always this work more thing. So there were times that I had, you know, two, three jobs. Um yeah. and so I just never had a, a, a money perspective that was very healthy to begin with. Now, the upshot of that is that I never had any, there will never be enough either, right? So I was fortunate that even though I didn't understand saving, I didn't understand investing, I never had a, a perspective of lack of abundance. The downside of that that mentality was that I didn't understand that when I got it, I also needed to protect it. So I was just like, I would get it and I would spend it, I would get it and I would spend it. And so when I had this epiphany in my work, I also had a personal epiphany that if I wanted to be able to talk to other people about money, I had to correct it for myself first. And so that really began my journey. And um, my last, uh, I had a management consulting firm uh, that was very, very, very well funded, but I left it with only like $80,000. You know, after five years, I had not saved enough to really take good care of Sandra. And so I take really good care of everybody else. You know, my employees had, you know, paid leave. They, they had good benefits. I took care of everybody else, but I didn't take very good care of me. And so one of the things that I'm clear about with myself is that I had to learn how to put myself first. And that's still, that's an ongoing process, you know. So when we think about my money story, that's a big part of that. So basically what happened is I was 44. I decided that I was no longer happy doing what I was doing. I actually had two ulcers. And so I just quit, you know. I, I closed down the company and I was, I just quit. And I made jewelry for a year <laughs> until I figured out that that wasn't going to make me a living. <laughs> so, I, um, I I did that, and, and my partner, who was a stock trader at that time, um, he said, why don't you be a financial planner? And I literally, Barry, I had never heard those words before. I did not know that financial planning as a profession existed at that point in my life at 44 years old. And so I was reading some books in a bookstore, which you know back then they still had physical bookstores, and uh, one of the authors said, if you are going to – hire a financial planner, hire someone who is a certified financial planner, or better yet, someone who is has a master's degree in financial planning. So that's what I did. I went and I got a master's degree in financial planning. The intention was always that I was going to do financial planning in the black community because that was my goal. Was my, you know, I, I wanted to do something that could change the trajectory of how we live with money in the black community. And then I just realized, you know, everybody I know needs this, everybody. And so um, that's really what happened. And, and I, I, I guess I can look back on it and think of it as courage. Um, but one of the things that I'll say is that because of my upbringing, I, I can't really say that I've ever felt a sense of security, right? So I don't really look to security being anything outside of myself. So it didn't feel like a risk. I'm sure, you know, other people listening to this or hearing my story feel like, oh, wow, she did that at 44. You know, it, it, didn't, it didn't feel scary to me because, you know, what am I giving up? I'm giving up time, you know. So, so at 44, going back to school, getting a degree, I was going to be 46 anyway, so be 46 with my master's, you know. So that was really, that was really what changed it for me. And I love that you had a year of transition of jewelry making. It was probably just soothing and calming and creative and wonderful. That was a gift, absolutely. Was. That was a gift. And actually, yeah, and what I did was I made jewelry based on where you were spiritually. So, for instance, if you and I sat down and you said, well, Sandra, I want waist beads, I would spend some time with you and we would talk and then I would just, like, see what came up. And literally, the the beads that I would create came from a dream. After you know, I, I would do do meditation for that person, 
and then it would just design itself. So I would wake up in the morning and I had a design and I would make it and it was always the right thing for that person, which was really very much a gift for me because it allowed me to trust my art, you know, to trust that part of me that is intuitive and, and uh, connected to everyone and everything. And so that was a real gift. I, it's funny you say that because I never really thought about it, but that year off probably is what made me able to approach financial planning in the way that I have because I started from that place. Yeah. So let's talk about that because I'm I one of the first few things that I remember about you is, She's a really smart cookie, and she's deeply spiritual. And that was wonderful for me to see at a financial planner meeting, you know, my very first one, which I didn't know what I was getting myself into. And so I remember that you had many qualities, and these were two of them. So how did you, yeah, how did, tell us how you bring the intuitive, spiritual side of yourself and life into your financial planning work? Yeah. So spiritual is who I am. Financial topics is what I know. And so I don't treat those things as separate. So... Mm -hmm. Uh, for instance, when I first came into the profession, you know, I, I've learned all the things that you have to know, you know, from everything from basic budgeting to the difference between a grut and a grat and a crut and a crat in estate planning, right? And so I know all that stuff. Um, now, what what makes me effective is how I can be with people as they grapple with where they are and what their hopes are and what their opportunities are and what their obstacles are and be with them as they experience what uh, whatever comes up. You know, sometimes it's, hey, I got this. Other times it's, oh, my God, what am I going to do with this? And so um, I don't hold an agenda for other people. As much as I want everyone to, you know, have a budget and know all the right things to do and do all the right things, I don't know anyone else's right answer. So I have to trust in their wholeness and in their intuition and in their their internal um, compass, their true north, to then bring what I know into who they are. And so for me, I was just very fortunate because while I learned all of the financial stuff, I also learned very early that many financial planners we're treating people like dollar signs rather than as humans having a, an experience of money. And so for me, uh, from the beginning, it, it was always that. So I never really had to learn that. Um, I came into the profession uh, already being very clear and mindful. I've had a mindfulness practice since uh, 98. Um, so uh, I've you know, done many silent retreats. I've, I've worked very closely with some of the very best meditation teachers in the country, and I came here with that. So I've never separated who I am with what I do and what I know. Uh, so I consider them both a gift, but I don't uh, put my knowledge above my way of being. So, so I think that that's really the thing that helps me do it so easily with others because I do it so easily with myself. What has it been like um, to be the only woman of color in a room when I met you 15 years ago? Has the field changed? What's happening in the financial planner community? Why has it been so white male? And what has that been like for you? And then I, I really want to get into the mission of your work in the black community, but I'd love if you're willing to share some of your experience around this and what's changing and how we can help change that. Okay, absolutely. So, it, you know, it, it's my reality in many spaces. So, you know, most black people, we're, we're often the only one in the room. That, that's not abnormal. 
um, in professional settings, in you know, in, in many settings. So, so we kind of know that, right? So we walk into a place and we know that. It, it, I'm very surprised when I walk into a financial planning situation and I am not the only black woman in the room, even in 2019. Now, I will say this. Um, being part of the diversity task force, what was in a task force, is now an actually full-fledged committee uh, at the Financial Planning Association and even the CFP board now has this huge initiative right now on increasing diversity. Now, the rub is so often when people say um, diversity, they mean white women, right? So they don't, they're still not talking about us. They're still talking about, you know, how women. do we get more white women? <laughs> white yes, women, exactly. right. And, and, yes, exactly. So it's not really black women or, or brown women or Asian women. You know, it's not really us. It's, it's, it's how, you know, when we talk about diversity, how do we get more white women? Now, what is happening, though, is that more and more people are having this conversation, and I was just at retreat last week where there was a conversation about um, diversity in this space, and the panel was two black women, myself and uh, uh, Rianca Dorsonville, who's really doing a lot of work around this, and then um, a black man, uh, a Ph.D., um, out of Utah, if you can believe it, um, who is uh, doing a lot of work around this, and then also a young white woman who is the leader of NextGen, which is the financial planning community for the next generation of planners. And so there's this real effort to pay attention and not only to include people but to respect their voice when they're in the room. So I, I think one of the things that people can do if this is something that they care about is to, number one, if you're part of a group that they're asking for voices and experts to be in the room, incorporate people of color. There's one guy on LinkedIn. He's a friend of mine on LinkedIn. And he says, if you are inviting me to speak on a panel and there are only white people on the panel, my answer is no. Yeah. And so he's being really clear and intentional that I am not going to be um, on a panel that is only white people. And yeah. to me, that was a real stake in the ground, you know. And I still see when they talk about, you know, um, investment conferences where there's talk about, you know, having diversity and it's all white women. And, you know, I just think that, that people have to reconcile that what, it, that what does it mean to have different voices and different perspectives in the room? What do we gain and what do we lose when there's not different voices and different perspectives? And so for me, I'm a very fair-skinned black woman. So often people don't know they're talking to a black woman when they're talking to me. And so I hear a lot of the very shameful things that people say when they don't know black people are in the room. And so I'm used to it. I uh, have decided how to deal with it, and that depends on the scenario. Um, I try to make sure that people are clear, so I consider letting people know that I'm black very early in the engagement, a public service announcement, so that they can, they can check, check their biases to the degree that they are able. Um, but, but I think that that's part of the important work, that there's a book out. I, I don't remember the author's name. I just saw her last week. The book is called Unbiased. And it's a beautiful, beautiful conversation around un uncovering our um, our biases that we might not know are there in a way that allows all of us to explore those biases, ir irrespective of where you are on that spectrum, right, um, and, and know what they are and know how to address them if you choose to. So I think that there are many things that we can do about it in this day and age. I think that uh, people have to be willing, white people particularly, have to be willing to do the work and not expect black people to explain what privilege is uh, or, or not to have to explain why it's important. One of the things that makes me crazy is when we have the conversation about the business case for diversity as though, you know, just being human isn't enough. Um, so, so those are some of the, the things that happen. I am less frustrated these days because I choose well. I choose how I give my energy. I only go where I'm wanted, so I don't try to push myself into an environment that is not welcoming. It's harder for younger people, though. I mean, I'm 58, right? I'm on, I'm on the tail end of my career. It's a little harder for young people, um, and particularly young black women. So I tend to spend a lot of time mentoring and supporting them in kind of how do they navigate this space 
um, as a woman of color and as a woman who, you know, is in a financial planning world where, you know, there are not a lot of us to begin with. So, you know, it, it is better in the sense that there are more of us. It is um, painful in the sense that we're still having this conversation in 2019. Yes, yes, yeah. Okay, okay. That's helpful. Um, you know, so a little bit about, for me, it was about five years ago, the first time I did a money memoir series where mm-hmm. I interview people from all different lineages, economic backgrounds, income levels now, and I did my best to be as diverse and inclusive as I could. And when I finished that series, I realized it was still, even though there was age diversity, um, there was a few Asian women, one Indian woman, there were no black women in that, even though I invited some, it didn't work out. And so it was the first time that I realized um, this is embarrassing for me. This is not the world I want to be living in. This is not what I want to create. I need to actively reach out. And even when I started reaching out to interview the pioneers of the financial fields, I I realized that most of the women were white. Um, yes. And I kept saying, where are the black women? Where are the Asian women? And so they're younger. And so that's, you know, similar to your personal story. You didn't know until your 40s that this was a field that existed. Um, and then you stepped into it. So it is actively changing. And I have a lot of women that I've interviewed in their 50s, um, but not 60-, 70-year-old women um, doing money work. And, yeah. yeah, so it's changed for me. And I also on my collaboration page have guidelines like that gentleman that you said where I will only do a podcast or be a part of a community that is diverse and inclusive at this point. I will not show up and, you know, see all white women and have me be a part of that. I can't, I can't stand behind that anymore. So anything I think, more? I mean, I think, go ahead. I just want to say this. I think those are the things that when when white people start saying that, this will yeah. change. Yeah. Because black people, and I speak specifically about black people because that's what I know. I don't try to speak for any other people. I have, you know, many Asian and Latino sisters, but I don't try to speak for anyone else because I can't. I can't even speak for darker-skinned black women. I can speak for Sandra and what my experience is in this body, in this world. And so one of the things that I will say is that when, when white people start doing that, and specifically white women, because, I mean, you're not old enough to remember the first women's movement. I am. And black women just simply were not included. There's this one iconic picture, you know, with, with Glory and the sister with the fist up, but that's it. You know, there was really no real concern for the issues of black women other than our numbers, right, because black women were already in the workforce. We were already taking care of other people's families. We were already doing all of these things that white women wanted at that time. We were already running our families. Um, so, you know, it, it, it was just never inclusive of us to begin with. And so when we look at it again now, what, 40 years later, how do we make sure that it's not the same? And that's why you see some of the resistance of black women to participate in some things because it's like we are not going to be tokenized. We are not going to be co-opted. We're not going to be just pulled along so that people can have numbers. Um, And that's, that's why when you look at the women, the women's marches and these kind of things that have been going on around the country, some people speak out against that, not because we are not in solidarity with women, but, but if people don't understand what intersectionality means and the way that it impacts us, they're, not, they're still not paying attention to our concerns. Right, right. And an extra nuance of myself is that I'm Jewish. And so my original many memoir series had lots of Jewish people. So I thought I was being diverse, you know, because I have so many Jew, and I'm Jewish. And it took me a while to realize I'm Jewish and I'm light-skinned. And so I have a lot of the same white privileges. I have a lot of privilege being a light-skinned woman. And so that's the work I've done and recently brought on a race consultant to help me um, behind the scenes. So there's a lot going on. Um, And so thank you. So let's move into 
more of your mission and your work because I, I read this on your site and it said the tools that allow the wealthy to build and transfer assets must be available to low wealth communities in order to change the trajectory of transgenerational poverty in the U.S. and beyond. So I imagine that you work in the black community with people from all different economic backgrounds and all different income levels at this time. And this is also a huge focus of yours, is to take the same tools that you learned as a financial planning planner, not just work in wealthy communities. Can you talk more about this, this your work? Absolutely. So um, a, a couple of things. There, there's a, a very wonderful timeline called Government Boom and Bust. Boost, I'm sorry, Boost and Bust. Um, barriers to wealth in building wealth in this country and, and uh, boost to wealth in this country and who got what, right? And so yeah. there are many, many things uh, in the tax code. There are things in, uh, you know, you're familiar with redlining. There are all kind of historical things that have impacted black wealth in this country. And so I do a lot of work around the racial wealth gap and the women's wealth gap and then the black women's wealth gap. So okay. uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the term of equal payday. Do you know about equal payday? No. So, well, let me say this. So, so women... Um, a pay, equal pay day for 2019 for all women, I believe it was April 2nd, and that's all women in relationship to all men. So that means that women had to work all of 2018 and into April of 2019 to make what a man made in 2018. Now, for black women, that's yeah. August 22nd of this year. So black women have to work almost two years to make the same amount of money that a white man would have made in 2018. And so a lot of my work around closing the women's wealth gap is about first just bringing this conversation to the forefront so that we're not, number one, ignoring that there's an income gap. We know about the salary, right? We know the 70 cents on a dollar. And then the wealth gap. Um, and so, right. so looking at those two things in tandem. So, so what I learned by being a financial, by taking the master's in financial planning is all of the different ways that people acquire, build, and transfer wealth. So some very basic things. Like, for instance, if you are very low income and you're on any kind of public benefits, not every state anymore, but most states still have what's called an asset means test which means if you save more than $2,000 and you're on Social Security SSI, not your regular Social Security payment, but the supplemental SSI that is designed for poor people, if you get SSI and you save $2,001, you will lose your SSI or you run the risk of losing your SSI. And they check this regularly by having you submit your bank statements, right? But here's the thing. Wealthy people can transfer uh, 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 reduce their estate by gifting money without tax consequences to themselves or the person they're giving to every year. I could give, I think, it, I think this year it's 15000 I can give, like, so for, for instance, I don't know if you watch football at all, but Russell Wilson just gave $12,000 in shares to um, all of his linemen, all the people who defend him. Now, people can do that when they're very wealthy. They can gift without any consequence. But poor people can't save $2,000 without losing their food stamps or their housing or, or, you know, their regular SSI. So there are things in this country that, uh, that, that support the, poor, the rich and, and actually are barriers to financial well-being for the poor. Um, and, and so when we look at those kinds of things, black people historically have bought homes or life insurance to transfer wealth. The downside is that when gentrification happens, and it does, even in communities where we own our homes, um, we often, you know, sell and move out. You know, maybe we're selling because the property taxes are too high uh, when the world around us changes. Um, maybe we're selling because we can no longer afford to stay, like I use San Francisco as the example. Um, median uh, median uh, home price in San Francisco is a million dollars, median. Right, so so you can imagine what's on the what's on the on the top end, right? So so what my goal was is to take all of these things that I learned and make it accessible. 
so that people of color, low-income people, and specifically the black community, and I do distinguish people of color from the black community primarily because most of the time when other groups are looking at their self-care and moving their agenda forward, they very seldom are saying, hey, let's look out for the black folks too. That's just not what happens. Um, I was recently on Black Renaissance. Um, speaking about a project that I'm doing. It's a small television show here in the San Francisco Bay Area. And the, the segment right before mine was uh, the Latino census. So it was a Latino woman on a black station that we've got 30 minutes a month. This show has 30 minutes a month. Now, talking about um, census taking for 2020 for the Latino community, you would be hard-pressed to find a black a conversation by a black person for the black community on Univision, right? You just wouldn't see it. And so the rub is there's no one that has our back, right? So we have to really be mindful of how do we take care of each other because more often than not, we're all we have. And so when I bring the wealth-building strategies to the black community, I have to bring it in a way that people are not um, – uh, concerned about being able to trust, right? So the, everybody knows about redlining. It still happens in the black community. Um, houses in the black community do not appreciate in the same way as in a white community. Um, you know, we've got food deserts in the black community. So we've got to be more mindful about what we buy and what we do with what we buy. So I'm talking about investing. I'm talking about lending circles. I'm talking about um, you know, the gift tax exclusion, I'm talking about what happens when you get a tax windfall, all of the things that uh, we can use the different policies that uh, in general would harm us, how do we use that to our benefit? And, and that's, you know, of course I would never exclude anyone, uh, but I do have to focus on my community. So that's really what I do. And by doing that, I'm also supporting other communities as well, which is fine. That's never a barrier for me, but I have to prioritize what I do for the black community. So going back to when you said you were talking about the equal pay day, and I said I didn't know that, but I, I have seen the income back, the, the income gap, the different percentages of what white women earn compared to men, what black women earn, what Latino women, Asian women. So that's what you were talking about that. And then you were also talking about, yeah, the wealth gap, um, and that's different for each community, and the wealth that's being passed down for, let's say, white people for years, and then what's happened in the black community, um, I'm just starting to learn about this. I'm just, Ta-Nehisi Coates had, it was a 90-minute piece on reparations, and he went back to slavery and went back to what's happened in the black community as far as not being able to buy homes or the interest rates and the entire history of that, um, which is so important for me to, and for everyone to learn about. So now, I mean, there's so much there. And I, I imagine, do you, do you teach about this? Do you teach about the history of how wealth has not been able to be passed down um, and now all the ways that you can as far as in investing in lending circles and tax issues. Absolutely. And, and so yeah. that, and we have to put it in context. I was, like I mentioned, I was on a panel at Stanford last week and um, the gentleman, the moderator uh, said the black wealth that was lost during Greenwood, which was in Tulsa, yeah. uh, Oklahoma. Um, so he, taught, he referred to it as black wealth that was lost, and I corrected him. I said, no, it wasn't lost. It was stolen. Yeah. And that's really what we have to reconcile is that, you know, black people just didn't, you know, say, oh, okay, and, and, you know, sell off all of our homes. We didn't do that. Now, now in some scenarios, when you look at um, the Haight-Ashbury or the Fillmore District in San Francisco or um, you look at Bayview Hunters Point in San Francisco, these are neighborhoods that were predominantly black and much of it black-owned. And actually the Bayview District was 42% home ownership, the highest percentage of home ownership in any single neighborhood, and that was a black community. And when you go to that community now, it's about a third black, a third Latino, and a third Asian. 
and you know it's just it, it's completely changed. And now, you know, it's one of the less expensive places to buy in San Francisco. So guess what? Everybody in tech is buying a home out there, you know. And, and so it, it drives up the property taxes. And then people who, you know, uh, maybe are just on the fringes of being able to hold on to their homes are being moved out. And so this is happening everywhere, even in places like Atlanta where there's this huge black community. And so the, the urban centers um, you know, basically white people are coming back and, and, and moving. Uh, you know, they say they come in for the community that they love so much, but then they move out the very community that they wanted to be part of. So then the question becomes how do we, you know, how do we create an environment where we can all thrive? And so that's really what this work about, you know, this isn't about hurting anyone else. This is about creating a, a community where we can all thrive. And so ta Coates, Dr. Sandy Darity, um, Derek Hamilton, uh, Kilolo Kijaki. These are all uh, researchers who have done amazing work in this space. Anne Price with uh, Insight uh, here in California. There's a lot of places to find good data. It's a little bit more difficult. How do we translate that data into what do we do about it now on a personal level? And that's really what I try to do. You know, I try to make sure that people understand context. Because, you know, Barry, without context, people go to shame. Because that's really what happens is that they, um, people make it personal. Well, you know, if you all only saved more, if you all only kept the dollar in the black community more, if you all only did this, it's very easy to point at individual behaviors and treat it as though it is the reason for these gaps. Now, individual behaviors are absolutely important. You and I know this is our sweet spot, right? How do we live well with what we have? Um, but we are not going to save our way out of this wealth gap. We are not going to budget our way out of the income gap. And so we have to be mindful about uh, making sure that we're not judging, shaming, or blaming as we do this work. So there's a, there's a fine line that we have to walk uh, in, in trying to build this in the black community. And, and so, you know, we're looking at entrepreneurship, absolutely home ownership, um, investing in the markets. Um, investing in each other, uh, even, you know, there's a lot of folks right now that are in the black community doing blockchain conversations. Um, buy, black the, buy Back the Block is a huge initiative in the United States right now in black communities. And there are many ways to do it. I just, you know, in my world, I try to do it through education because I don't, as you know, I don't sell products. I don't, you know, I don't do anything like that. So from my, my corner of the world is coaching building coaches, right, so people who are operating by not shaming or blaming people, and then also doing education. Hmm. So share some more about that, the work that you do as far as the training. You train others. And, yeah, just share more about the actual the work that you're doing right now. Yeah, so I, for the past 15 years, I've been building individual coaching programs. You read in my bio about the program at EARN. Some of the programs are still around. Some of them have moved on to other things. Um, but normally what I was doing was building them at the nonprofit so that there was a sustainable capacity building effort at the organization. I had to, uh, I couldn't be everywhere, <laughs> so I created a certification that's called the Financial Fitness Coach. Um, the upside of that is I've partnered with uh, AFCPE, which is a nonprofit agency that does financial education, and they actually do certifications around financial counseling. So they cover the financial content, which makes my life a lot easier. And then I get to really focus on how do we coach it well. So if I'm talking to you and you say, well, Sandra, you know, I really want to have a budget, rather than go to, okay, so this is how you, you know, this is what you do, Barry. You, you track your income, you track your expenses. I can really take the time, and I train people to take the time to focus on, so what matters most to you here? When you're living well with your money, what are you doing? What do you want to be doing differently? And what do you have to know? Who do you have to be? What do you have to have? And what do you want to do in order to live with money in a way that is satisfying for you? And so, you know, it's very similar to, you know, the work you've been doing for years, I remember your money map years and years ago, right? So it, it, it's very similar to that in training people on how to do the work with that kind of approach 
rather than judging, blaming, shaming, directing, or even advising, quite frankly. I don't, I don't do advising at all. All of my work is around building the coaching skills and creating a way of being with clients. Now, the majority of the people who are in my programs are already financial professionals, but one of the things that I'm really working hard to do is get people who just want to start to have money conversations to, to learn some fundamental coaching skills. They don't have to be a financial expert, but just to really start to have conversations with the people they care about and break this taboo about, you know, talking about money in our communities. And you've always worked in the nonprofit sphere versus profit, you know. Is that? Can you but, share more about that? Because I'm in the profit world. You know, I've always looked over to nonprofit and said, how does that work? How does that work for you and your own life? And do you reach more people because it's nonprofit? Like, share why you've chosen that route. Yeah. Yeah, kind of default, to be honest. I, I won't say that you reach more people. I probably reach more people, not so much because I'm in the nonprofit space, but because I'm training people who then work with the people, right? So if I train a 1,000 people, they can reach more people than I could ever reach. Um, I do some for-profit work. Um, I, I recently participated in a, a, an engagement with a group that's doing financial conversations in the black, specifically for black women. And I'm very excited about that. I don't normally partner, and this is actually the first time I've partnered with a bank. Um, and and I, you know, I tell people the disclaimer: I'm partnering on this project because I believe in this project. So I am doing some for-profit work. Um, I actually even have a, I, I have my own coaching program, as I think you might know already, that is executive coaching for people who um, are build, they're entrepreneurs who want to build their business. So I do that. Uh, so that's my my for-profit arm. But most of the work I do in financial coaching is in the nonprofit space. I don't do a lot of individual financial coaching anymore. I just don't have the bandwidth anymore. Um, but I do really connect people with the folks who are in the training program. So, you know, it helps them build their client base, and it also helps them um, uh, get out by far more than I could. You know, there, you know there's only so, as you know, there's only so many clients one person can take um, unless you're doing group sessions. But uh, I just really don't have the bandwidth for it. So I train people. They do the work. They're building out programs. Some of them are in nonprofits. Some of them are private practice. I've got a lot of CFPs, I've got uh, CPAs, um, financial counselors, all of them who are in the coaching programs learning how to use a more coaching approach to the work that they do, kind of trying to, you know, minimize the shaming and the blaming because a, a lot of times we think that you can change people's behavior with knowledge. And, and I just, number one, I just don't believe that's true. I don't believe that if you know better, you do better. But I also know that you cannot do better if you don't know better. So I try to help bridge that gap. Okay. And you and I share that. I mean, that was when I went to the first books on money management, it was all white men and it was all such a shaming, blaming, judgment, uh -huh. you know, tough love approach. And I right. thought this is not going to work. This is yeah. not going to work yeah. for me. Well, I think I think you have and you have beautifully done. You have beautifully integrated. Um, how do we really bring our full selves? You know, and, and I remember watching you from afar um, in in what might have been. I'm not sure for sure, but the first iteration of some of the work you're doing now with the money maps and the things that you were doing back then, and it was all very much like this, right? And so. You know, you, you were doing it in your space of for-profit world, and I was doing it in the non-profit world. And um, so it's kind of sweet that we're back together again having this conversation. I, I love it. I, I have hours of actually questions for you, so we're just touching the surface of what I want to know about you and your work. And um, so just a few more questions. Um, okay, I'm thinking, fine. yeah, I'm thinking about black women in this moment and I, I met in New York. I spoke uh, at the Lincoln Center for my very first time. So normally I speak in front of 100 people, and that's really comfortable for me. And this was 3,000 people at the Lincoln Center. I was on a panel. Um, it was an event called the Women of the World, Women in the World, and it was the most diverse, inclusive event I've ever seen or been a part of. It was incredible. 
Um, and when I was there, I got to meet one of my colleagues who I've interviewed a lot, Jaquette Timmons. I don't know if you're... Yes, I know Jaquette. Yeah, I okay. Know so, okay. Mm-hmm. So wonderful black woman, um, Jamaican black woman, and we got to break bread. And one of the things that her and I were talking about was some of the history of black women and how they were able to um, get jobs and better jobs after slavery before the men. Um, they were They were the breadwinners. Um, can, I, and I don't want to jump from then to now, but I also, what's changed, what's different, um, if I think of Elizabeth Warren's work on women and single women and women of color, it keeps breaking down to um, that it, it's, you know, our relationship to money, just the circumstances in our system lead us to, you know, going into debt, having to file bankruptcy, um, being poor, um, and just all of Elizabeth Warren's research on women and money is incredible. But can you share more about black women? I know I'm asking a huge question in here. Um, what are the strengths and challenges that women so that are that situation women are right is very Still much very that that situation is still very true that black women often are are employed more than black men um black women are often the breadwinners in our homes, even when our men are working um they have a very different experience than we do um you know black men are often still seen as a threat in this society even when they're wearing a suit and a tie so there there is no uh, one thing that black people can do. I mean, think about it. In, in 2019, New York had to pass a law that black women should be able to wear their hair the way it grows out of their head in a professional, <laughs> in a professional setting and not be discriminated against. It, it's like, you know, um, that is amazing to me that, you know, uh, you cannot discriminate on how someone wears their hair. Um, and that's ne- never something that any woman of any other race would have to experience or have a conversation, even have a conversation about. So, you know, we know those Even with a Jewish are, woman, right, a Jewish woman with, a Jewish with the woman. same yeah. curly yeah. hair, same, yeah. 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 You would not have that, yeah, you would not have that battle. Um, so, so yeah, it, it's a, a very different uh, experience everywhere. And I think what's different now is that we are no longer willing to um, do do the respectability conversation. Now we're just saying what's true. You know, uh, when you think about how, look at the, the Me Too movement that Tarana Burke uh, brought up, you know, years ago. It didn't become a thing until white women said it, right? It didn't get traction until a white woman had been abused. And, and that's just our reality, you know, and it's unfortunate, but that's what we've been dealing with in this society since we were brought here. And actually, this is actually the year of return. This is 400 years from when the first ship made it to Jamestown. So um, I was back in Ghana in February and went to those dungeons where there was a women's dungeon, a men's dungeon, and a baby dungeon. You know, they had a, a dungeon for our babies. And um, so... You know, it, it's the reality of being in a place that historically has, you know, uh, not viewed us as human, you know. And, and so there's still a lot of, of that kind of behavior. And I know that people think things are better, and in some ways they are better. Uh, and in some ways they're still very much the same. And so uh, what black women experience, and again, I can only speak for myself, and, and even within the black community, colorism uh, is a big deal. So I, I'm a very light-skinned black woman, so I have privileges that, you know, if my hair were, you know, a little bit kinkier and my skin were three, four shades darker, my experience would be different. And so we just have to be aware that that's, that's at play all the time. Um, there are more and more spaces that we're creating for ourselves as safe spaces. And uh, there are more and more people who are, you know, throwing their elbows around to make room uh, for us to be included. So I, I will say that part is better. We're more outspoken about it now than, we, than we've been in my lifetime, and I've been around for 60 years. So, um, you know, it, it's been a lot. But when I look at what my mother's experience was as a black woman, single mom, raising four kids, um, you know, she still 
is is adjusting to being able to speak her mind, you know, without having to worry about repercussions. So, you know, it, it's it's very much true in this day and age. Um, I think the main thing that I would say uh, that black women are also we're we're highly educated, but that also comes with student loans and lower pay. <laughs> you know? So, so you know that that's kind of the rub. You know, black women have a lot of degrees and the student loans to go with it. Um, and then th- we're often the uh, sole support for generations beyond just our own. We might be, I was taking care of my mom until she passed. I have two moms. Uh, one is still living. My biological mom is still living, but the mom who raised me, she just passed, but I was taking care of her financially before she transitioned. Um, you know, so sometimes your money is not just yours. So in addition to lower wages, more debt, your money having to go further into different family members, those are all issues that we deal with. You know, many of us go off to college, and instead of having someone able to send money to us, we're having to send money home. <laughs> you know, so, uh, you know, when the scholarships and student loans come in, we're sending money home. Um, you know, so those, and, and that's also something that immigrant women go through, you know. So, so there are some commonalities, uh, you know, across people of color and, and even some white women. I mean, not every white woman has access to financial resources. So, you know, being women in general, we have burdens and, and, and challenges that men just do not have. Those things are exacerbated when you're a woman of color, and even more so when you're a woman of color who has lived in intergenerational poverty. So how can my community and the larger community work with you, find you? Is Are there one or two projects that you really want us to know about? And then I'm just going to have to find a way to continue with all the questions that I still have for you. And I'm well, so well, grateful for we, you. We can take... We can take another one or two if you wish. I, I, I think yeah. that, you know, this is well worth the time, and so I don't want you to feel you didn't get yeah. all of your questions in. So let's go ahead and do it. Yeah, yeah. Well, why don't we, yeah, why don't we just start there and then see as far as what are the projects that you're most excited about at this time and how can people find you and work with you? Okay. So... There are some really exciting things that are just going on in general in the financial capability space. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with children's savings accounts, but um, they're kind I mean, of getting yes, traction. But I, didn't, I didn't know if there was like, yes. To some degree. Yeah, so it's a thing. It's a thing in the nonprofit sector, right? And so, so you know, CSAs, children's savings accounts, um, are, are really becoming more and more prominent around the country. I'm working in a project on a project in Oakland called Brilliant Baby, and it's part of Oakland Promise, which is a cradle-to-career uh, program that seeds a CSA, a children's savings account, when parents have a newborn, and we offer one-on-one financial coaching, and then they go into kindergarten where they get more money, uh, in their CSA, and then there's Future Centers, which happens at middle school, which starts to help kids with high college readiness, high school and college readiness, to start changing the conversation about if to which. So rather than if you're going to college, really starting that conversation. This program what grew out of a project in Oklahoma called OK Seed, where they seeded the um, uh, the, the children's savings account and found that maternal well-being and maternal depression decreased just by having this account for their children for college. And so these are these are programs that that have this intergenerational approach and it's it's all families. It's not based on any specific uh ethnic group or, or race. Um but of course it's it's for families who who right now are are in uh poverty. Um, the hope is at some point we have this for every baby, and you might have heard about baby bonds. Uh, those are some programs that really can help in the long run. They're not going to do anything right now about the racial wealth gap, but they can help in the long run to start to, to bend that arc more towards financial justice uh, going on. So that's one project that I'm very proud of. I'm also still working with EARN. Where there's a program called Saver Life. And that program is designed to just help people get in a habit of saving. 
And so people can do that online. They can they can join Saver Life and they get – I'm the financial coach on that, so they get financial uh, emails. They get emails about financial topics from me and, and just information about how do they keep going. Um, you know, uh, I answer questions on there when people have questions about specific financial topics. The way people can get involved in those kinds of things is that when you're having connections or conversations with people, really starting to bridge the gap between um, lower income folks and access to uh, things that they might not have. Like often you might be in a community where there is not a bank. In your community. So knowing about things like ACORNS for people to invest. I'm not affiliated with that program, but I love ACORNS. It's a really easy way for people to begin investing in a, in a no-shame kind of way. They have education stuff on their website. I love ACORNS a lot. Um, and then if people want to be trained, people want to actually become financial coaches, I train people to do that. And they can find that at the uh, the website, either at my website, which is uh, sagefinancialsolutions.org. Um, and then also I'm on all the social media. Um, Instagram is like sage.money, I think sage.money. And then Sage Money on Facebook and Twitter. So that's how people can find me and engage. I welcome any questions. I'm happy to help people find their way. I'll have to tell you, Barry, I find so many people who want to do this work, even if it's just in their church or in their own community or in their meditation circle or hanging out with their girlfriends and don't feel comfortable having the money conversation. I know that you do a lot of work in this space about raising that confidence level. And if people want to take it to the next level of actually having these conversations yourselves, you know, after you've, you know, done your own work or even while you're doing your own work, being able to shepherd uh, other people in the process, that's the kind of work that I'm about right now. So that's how people can find me and engage and participate. Um, and I welcome, you know, I, I, I really want to see particularly women, particularly women, break this idea that we are bad with money. Um, I don't think that it's true. I think that, you know, more often than not, we are managing money very well. Uh, I think that we might not always know how to plan ahead or might not always put ourselves first um, in planning ahead. And as you know, women live longer, make less, and then care for other people. So it's like the triple threat of, of being, you know, poor in our old age. You know, so, so how do we stop that dynamic? How do we change that narrative? So I welcome any partners on that journey. Wonderful. And with the financial coaching, you said earlier you're willing to coach folks not only who have a financial planner background, but or coaching background, but just who want to become financial coaches or learn how to have these money conversations in the different fields or communities. Absolutely. That so in. Yeah. Right. So people who are already coaches, I help them build the financial content to know how to coach financial conversations. People who have the financial content, I work more with them on building the coaching skills to be able to use that content in a way that people really, like you said, you know, uh, spewing at people, you know, dumping financial knowledge just doesn't work. So how do we do it differently? And you teach the business side, the entrepreneurial side as well? I do. I do. And, and right. one of the reasons right. that's so important is people don't often know how to make a living at it. They want to right. do it, but they don't know how to make a living. You asked earlier about how I make a living in the nonprofit sector. So I have a salary. I have a nonprofit agency myself. I pay myself a salary. I hire contractors. I don't have consultants. I don't have employees, um, but I have consultants who work with me, and they, you know, they get the 1099 and they work on different projects. Like right now, I have seven coaches working on different projects around the country. I also trained the 60 coaches who were part of the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau Financial Coaching Initiative for three years. So, so people get to work how it satisfies them. And that's one thing I want to say, you know, as I know we're coming to a close, but I want to add this. The wonderful thing about the work we do, and I think you're a perfect example of this, we truly get to do it in the way that makes our heart beat fast. You know, even with you coming in and seeing, you know, the white men and the, you know, ticking every dot, and you carved out a practice that is satisfying for your life and is a gift to the people that you, 
that, that participate with you. I've been able to do the same. And this is the wonderful thing about the financial topics. You don't have to say, oh, my God, I don't want to work for XYZ Big Bank. I don't want to sell products. I, but I do want to help people learn more about money. You get to do this however you want. And if I haven't learned anything else, I was a newbie when you and I met. I was, I maybe had just graduated, but I was the founding member of the Financial Therapy Association. I was on the diversity task force. I was running the pro bono programs. I did what made my heart beat fast, and eventually I started making a living out of it. I was, it was, I was broke in the beginning. I'm not going to lie to you. It was tough. But I was determined to do it the way that I wanted to. I could have gone out and sold products and done asset management. I could have done all of that. But that wasn't satisfying for my soul. And at that stage and place of my life, I needed work that was satisfying for my soul. And so I got the education. I knew what I was doing. And I carved out the pathway that was going to be satisfying for me. Yes. Sandra, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for your work. Thank you for that last thank you for all of it. I mean that last piece of, you know, creating work that makes our heart beat, creating work that we love, doing what we're great at, not what we suck at, doing what we love and what we're great at. And yeah, of course, at the beginning of any entrepreneurial journey, uh you know, it's tough. There's cash flow dips, a lot of them, right? We we Takes Absolutely. a while to hit sustainability. That's that's real for any entrepreneur. Um, that's real. Yeah. Thank you for all the work that you do in the world. I'm tempted to do your training or to do some kind of training with you. I think that will be important for me at some point. And I'm thinking of doing my own certification next year, but it will not be to help people start their own businesses. So I'm glad that you're doing that. I want to give people the tools, the unshaming tools, and help them learn how to start all those money conversations and to bring them into whatever fields, you know. Um, and, well, it sounds and like you, I'll be taking your training too. Okay, good. All good. All good. It's an honor to circle back with you after 15 years. I love that we started with chocolate. Um, and I'll, I'll virtually be sending over some more dark chocolate. I'm trying to think of my favorite. It's not coming to me, my favorite bars right now, but yes to all of it. Thank you. Yes, thank you so much. I appreciate it, and I appreciate wrapping back around. It's really been a delight. Thank you for joining me with this Money Memoir interview. I really hope you found something here to take with you, whether it was a lesson, some inspiration, or even just a little grace for yourself and where you are in your money journey. If you're feeling called to wade deeper here, please pack your financial goals, soul deep aspirations, and grab your favorite person. The Art of Money is a holistic framework that integrates money healing, money practices, and money maps, and blends therapeutic body-based practices with real life tools that we all need to create healthy, sustainable change in our money lives. So if you'd like to begin your money healing journey with the art of money today, learn more at barrytesler.com.